last week, we looked at um, Moses. And Moses has just previously in the passage had what I would call a burning bush moment. And many of you have probably had your own burning bush moments. Now, maybe uh, you've seen a burning bush because someone planted it in front of their house. Uh, But what he's talking about more likely is uh, a burning bush moment with the Lord. And so many of you probably have not seen a bush burning and yet not being consumed and heard a voice from it. And if you did, you probably wouldn't tell anybody because they would think you're nuts. And, And maybe you would feel like you were nuts if you heard a bush talking to you. But here we have... Uh, Moses, who has heard from a burning bush, he's heard very specific instructions and words, and now he, uh, having heard those words, has the opportunity to act on them. Now, if you've ever been to a a youth summer camp, or if you've ever been in your quiet time and, and the Lord has spoken something very specific to you, maybe you've kind of struggled with that because while in the moment it found it sounded really cool, it sounded amazing, and you had the hair on the back of your neck stand up, and it was this experience, if you will. But after the experience fades and you go back to normal life, you have two choices. You can go, eh, that was just a moment, or you can act on it and go, that was the Lord, and now I need to respond accordingly. The problem with burning bush moments is that many times we're looking for them. We're looking for signs and wonders from the Lord, and he doesn't always give them. Many times he won't give another burning bush moment until you've already been obedient to the first one. And so uh, Jesus himself said, a a wicked and uh, perverse generation seeks after a sign. And yet what we need to do is call the Lord, Lord. And when he speaks to us, we need to act on what he tells us. And so Moses, in the second part of chapter 4, has this opportunity to hear what the Lord has told him and to start moving. And so Moses, verse 18, went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, by the way, best father-in-law name ever, Jethro, If we have another kid, I'd like to name him Jethro. My wife, probably not. But Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are now dead. So then Moses took his wife and his sons and he set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. So he's asking, essentially, for time off. Hey, uh, I need to go do this thing. I need some time off from work. And his father-in-law is who he works for. Now, many of you would not like to work for your father-in-law, but, but Moses does. He's a shepherder. He's been in the wilderness for 40 years from the time that he left Egypt in the first place. And now he's just become this content, quiet farmer And while he's minding his own business, the Lord speaks to him and says, I want you to go back to where you ran from, where you exiled from, and I want you to deliver my people who you, at one point, tried to deliver by your own strength. And so leaving well uh, means honoring those that you are leaving behind while obeying the God who called you to go. God calls you to go somewhere, and it means you're going to leave where you have been, 
you need to be careful that you leave well. He could have very easily said, so long, Stinktown, I'm out. But instead of saying, so long, Stinktown, I never liked you anyway, what he does is he says, hey, I'd like to go back to the land where my people are, and I need to see if they're still alive. Now, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, the disciples found themselves in a very similar situation. If you remember, Peter was alongside a boat, having fished all night, and the Lord says to him, come and follow me. But before he says, come follow me, he says, cast your net on the other side. If you remember the story, Peter had already been fishing all night. He'd casted his net on every side, in every part of the lake, perhaps, caught zero fish. And so Jesus says to him, cast your net on the other side. And, and Peter, being a fisherman, is basically obstinate. He's like, I, I've been fishing all night. What's the point? Obviously, the fish aren't biting. And Jesus stares at him and he says, do it anyway. And so Peter, seeing the way that Jesus looked at him, he was kind of insistent, goes, okay. So he does it because Jesus said to, and when he does it, the net fills up so full that the nets are about to break and they fill the boat with enough fish to pay for all of their debt. And they, they were fishermen. This is how they lived. And so after they catch all the fish, all of a sudden he's got this new corner on the fishing market then Jesus says, why don't you leave fishing and come with me? And that's what rabbis would do in their day. And by the way, rabbis would not pick fishermen to be their disciples. But he looked at Peter and said, follow me. And his brother Andrew was there as well. And, and then right after that, at least in Mark's account, Matthew's account in chapter 4, he then talks to James and John, who are also fishermen. And they're fishing with their dad. This is what their, their families have done for generations. So in order to be called to go do something, he says, James and John, follow me. They're, call, they're being called to do something, not to not do something. But in order to leave what they're doing and do something else, they have to leave some things behind that are near and dear to them. Relationships. Uh, livelihoods. How am I going to provide for my family? What are you going to do so that I can feed them? But in these cases, they're doing the same thing that Moses did. They're being called to leave what they know to go to something that they don't know, kind of like Abraham. In Luke chapter 18, as Peter has been walking with Jesus for a couple years now, Jesus has just gotten done speaking to the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler has come to Jesus and said, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's inherited everything else. He's rich. He says, how do I get eternal life? How can I guarantee my ticket punched to heaven? And Jesus says to him, there's one thing that you have not fulfilled according to the law. I want you to go and take all of your stuff and sell it. Now, does he call us all to sell everything? I would say no. I think Jesus was pointing out an idol in this man's life. He says, I want you to go sell what is precious to you to leave it and take the money and, and feed the poor. And the man, really wanting what Jesus had to offer, departed from Jesus because it was going to cost him too much. There's a cost to discipleship. So he departed from him, sorrowful because he was rich. And Jesus immediately turns to his disciples and he says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into eternal life. 
because of what it will cost them. The poor, many times, will receive Jesus before anybody else because what do they got to lose? But if we really had an eternal perspective on our stuff and on our jobs and on our family and how quickly those things could be taken from us because they're only temporary, we would have no problem giving them up, recognizing what Jesus is offering us. This stuff is dust. This stuff is a garbage heap. I'm spending my whole life taking care of this stuff, and yet it's going to be gone. Someone else is going to inherit it when I leave. And so Moses is being called to go, and he takes the step of faith, and he looks at his boss and says, I need to leave. And Jethro says to him, go in peace. I have no beef with you. Go for it. But that's not always the response for the believer. When God calls us to follow him, to lay down our lives for his cause, many times we get the opposite response. It's not going peace. It's like, why are you being weird? Why are you giving up what the life has, this life has to offer you in order for something you can't prove? But the reality is, <laughs> there's this eternal weight of glory. Whatever you give up in this life, God's going to replace it in ways that that stuff will never matter. So what's Moses' purpose for leaving? We've already read it. He says in verse 18, Let's, I, I want to go to my people to see whether or not they're still alive. Now, is that what God told him to do? No. <laughs> he said, I want you to go to your people who are still alive, and I want you to call them out of Egypt. I want you to talk to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. You're their deliverer. They've been in slavery for 400 years under the bondage of Egypt. Go in and deliver them. But Moses apparently wasn't clear on the purpose that God had in sending him. But did that mean that God wouldn't send him? No. Do you think that Peter and James and John and Andrew all completely understood what Jesus meant when he said, follow me? Do you think that when they heard him say, follow me, they were thinking, oh, sweet, I'm going to go die. I'm going to go die for the cause of the kingdom. Many of them were killed, martyred for being witnesses of Jesus. And if he had told them that up front, I guarantee they wouldn't have gone. What? I thought you're the Messiah. They knew that he was the Messiah, but they thought that the Messiah was going to come up and set up his kingdom right now. That they were actually going to just be kind of his cabinet members. We're going to advise Jesus in his new kingdom. But Jesus then begins to teach them, no, in order to follow me, you're going to have to lay down your life and many of you will die for the cause that I'm going to do. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Which is why Peter later on in his ministry was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> You're not going to die, Lord. <laughs> that sounds intense. I thought we were just going to basically set up a kingdom and overthrow the Romans. That'd be awesome. And who wouldn't want to jump on that? But that's not why Jesus came. First, he came to deal with sin. He came to deal with men's hearts. And so the Lord uh, relieves in verse 19 some of Moses' fears in leaving the backside of the desert. He, he says, hey, that place that you ran away from because you knew uh, that they wanted to take your life because you murdered someone, uh, the people that are seeking after your life, they're dead now. You can go back and know that you're no longer a wanted criminal. That'd be a little bit comforting, right? But then Moses responds with faith. Having heard all of what Mo God's been just telling him, verse 20 says that um, Moses took his wife and his sons and they set them, he set them on a donkey. 
And he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. So three things are happening here. He's giving everything he knows, everything he possesses, everything that he holds dear in life, he's surrendering it to the Lord. The Lord says, go, so here we go. So how is he doing this? He's setting his family in their transportation vehicle. They're all getting in the station wagon. They're all getting on the Greyhound bus, and they're crossing, not the United States, the Sinai Peninsula. By the way, hot. A little bit dry there. A little bit uncomfortable. God calls us to uncomfortable things. But as he puts them on the donkey, uh, the family tractor, if you will, they're getting ready to travel. It's in this expression of faith. It takes faith to do what God calls us to do, but faith is something that we do in the ordinary daily exercises of life. He says, here's my family. Here's my sons. Here's my wife. We're getting on the donkey, Lord. And then it says there that he himself returned to the land of Egypt. Okay, Lord, I'm yours. Here we go. I'm on the donkey too. I'm on this journey And then it says he took what was in his hand, his stick, his walking stick, his shepherd crook. Remember, um, God said, I want you to go into Egypt and I want you to call my people out. And he says, but what, Moses says, what what if they don't believe that you sent me? He goes, what do you have in your hand? And Moses goes, uh, I got stick. That's what Moses has to offer this relationship with him and God, by the way, a stick, most of you have more than a stick, right? God's not calling you to, to whip anybody with a stick. But he says, what do you have in your hands? What are your skills? What do you possess? He says, well, I got a stick. He goes, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and the stick immediately becomes a snake. This is going to be a sign to Pharaoh that I have sent you. This is going to be a sign to my people that I have sent you. And right after that, he says, okay, now pick up the snake by the tail. That would have taken me more faith. Uh uh-uh, how about I shoot it, and then we move on? He says, pick up this, so he picks up the snake, and it immediately becomes another stick, the same stick. He says, so when you go, I want you to speak words, but then I want you to do actions, and then they will know that you are mine, that I sent you. You're my messenger. You're their deliverer. And so Moses doesn't any longer call this stick, by the way, or his shepherd's crook. He doesn't say, so then I loaded up my stick. He says, it says, here that, it says here that Moses took the rod of God. He took God's rod. No longer Moses' rod. He says, I'll take God's rod with me. Because that's where the power comes from. Who possesses the stick? Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders... Before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So Midian to Egypt is a long journey. Uh, By the way, life is a long journey, although it seems to increasingly go by faster and faster. But this traveling that they're getting ready to do, they're crossing the Sinai Peninsula, and I have it there for you on the map. And to the lower right of the Sinai Peninsula is a thing called the Gulf of Aqaba. And I know I'm saying it wrong. I have to be. But to the lower right of the Gulf of Aqaba is a place called Midian. But 
Many scholars believe that Midian not only was there, but it was also the other side where you see traditional Mount Sinai. That's the location where Moses heard from the Lord on the Mount of the Lord called Mount Horeb. It's also known as Mount Sinai. And on this place is where the burning bush was. This is where God met with Moses to give him his mission. But then he's there, and he's got to travel from there all the way up to the upper left of the map called Egypt. So this is a long journey. Lots of time to think. Lots of time to take one step in front of the other. He's been in the wilderness for 40 years tending sheep, where God's been preparing him for his mission. And now that he's actually on the mission, God's, he, he's, he doesn't just care about where he speaks to us. He doesn't just care about where he's sending us. He's going to speak to us along the way. Life is a journey. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to talk with him. He wants to teach us things along the way. And if you remember, and if you've read before in Deuteronomy, I know many of you, that's your favorite passage, uh, Deuteronomy, your favorite book. But in there, there's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, after God has given the law, his commands, how they shall live when they get to the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, as he's wrapping it up, he says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them down on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, post these words I've given to you everywhere you're going to look. Put them on your hands, write them on note cards, post them on your walls. Everywhere you're going to be, I want the opportunity to speak into your life. But he's telling them as parents to teach their children this way because he doesn't just tell them to do it. He's been doing it for them for years. For Moses, who's getting ready to go on this journey, he tells him what to do. And then before he goes, he tells him again, And then as they're walking, he continues to tell them, this is what you're supposed to be doing. This is what your life's supposed to look like. So when we get to Deuteronomy 6, he's telling them, this is how you'll reflect who I am. I'm the word of God. I've been speaking to you all throughout Genesis and Exodus and Numbers. And now in Deuteronomy, I want to remind you about it again. This is how I've been with you. This is how you're to be with your children. Isn't that cool? God doesn't call us to do things that he's not himself already doing. He wants us to reflect him in that way. He's personal. He has words just for you. Do you know that? No doubt. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe would not perish but have eternal life. That's for the whole world. But let's not lose the fact that he's also interested in you as an individual. And just like Moses, who received words from God specifically, he has words specifically for you. But then he goes on while he's speaking to Moses, and he says, I'm going to have you speak to to Moses. I'm going to have you speak to Pharaoh. And I, I want you to do these signs, but I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, wait a minute. 
You want me to go tell him to do something that he's not going to do. What is the purpose in that? So I'm going to go waste my oxygen. Okay, all right, so, sounds great. Well, sometimes God does call us to speak to people things that they're never going to listen to. But it's not to waste our words. Sometimes we get to know the heart of God a little bit. We get to understand a little bit more why he would be frustrated because he's been speaking since creation and men have been ignoring him since creation started. But we find out why in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3 through 5, where later we'll find out, God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, and I'll do it by great judgments. I'm going to do what I'm going to do against Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh's not stronger than me. So when he hardens his heart, and that's what it'll say later, it says in in Exodus multiple times, Pharaoh hardened in his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh rebelled against the commandment of God. Pharaoh ignored Moses' words over and over. And then it will eventually say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because God gives us the freedom to make decisions. Some people don't like that theologically. But God does not point a gun to your head and force you to do things. He gives us free will. But God works together with our will our willingness or a lack of willingness. And eventually, when we make enough decisions, he puts in place what we've already decided. So you say no to God long enough, and I don't know how many times it takes, he eventually sets our hearts in place. He says, fine, have what you will rather than what I will. And as he does that, (laughs) our fate is sealed. And, and so you might say, well, how many times can I say no? How many times can I sin against God before he won't forgive me anymore? And I would say to you, stop counting times and just start agreeing with God. Yeah. Repent of your sin now if you don't, because I don't know how many times it is. Frankly, I don't want to know. It's like saying, how many times can I sin before I can no longer go to heaven? If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, how many sins will my God forgive me of? I want to do as few as possible. I want to please the one that's willing to forgive me. If he's willing to forgive me, I I want to please him. If he's made atonement for my sin, I want to take full advantage of that. I don't want to walk any longer in disobedience to him. He tells me very clearly that sin brings forth death. How could I want to any longer play with fire and not expect to get burned? And so, He's personal. And God says, I will harden his heart as he hardens his heart to prove to you that he's not stronger than me. And then I'll deliver the people anyway. So verse 22 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you're, you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, this probably sounds kind of harsh. But God says, Israel, the nation itself, 
Israel, renamed Jacob Israel, God named Jacob Israel, governed by God. Uh, Jacob's already died. So he's not talking about Jacob. He's not talking about the renamed Jacob Israel. He's talking about the nation of Israel that came from the descendants of Israel. So he says, Israel is my firstborn son. He's mine. I possess him. I made him exist. And therefore, let my son go that he may serve me instead of serving you. Right now, Israel in the nation's history, they were serving Egypt. They were slaves to Egypt. And God says, I'm done with that. The time's up. They are going to serve me now. When they serve you, Egypt, when they serve you, Pharaoh, uh, you're you're laboring them so harshly that they're going to die from their service. But when they're set free to serve me, it will mean life to them. It will mean eternal life. It will mean that there will be abundance. There will be blessing attached. He says, if you refuse, though, I'm going to treat your firstborn sons like you've treated mine. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. In Genesis chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 2 through 3, God says, I will make you a nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Now he's going to curse those who have been cursing the nation of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 15, he had told Abraham that there would be a time where Abraham's descendants would go on to captivity. And in verse 13 of chapter 15, he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them, for a time, for 400 years. Well, that time's up. (laughs) He says, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge them. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And so I'll judge the nation that they serve. Though it's part of my plan, that part of my plan will have a timepiece to it. So verse 24, back in Genesis, or Exodus chapter 4, it came to pass on the way, as they're traveling, that they encamped, and the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Sought to kill who? Moses. Well, that's, that's kind of weird. Wait a minute. God called Moses to go to Egypt, and as he's being obedient, the Lord seeks to kill Moses. What's going on here? This is kind of odd. And then his wife, Zipporah, got out a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet. Okay, the weird gets weirder. And said, surely you're a husband of blood to me. Now, I don't know what's going on in their house, but apparently there's been an argument and there's a little bitterness involved. Verse 26, so he let him go. And she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So, Moses is obeying, he's traveling to the place God told him to go, and God tries to kill Moses. What's going on here? Why does he try to kill Moses? He seeks to put Moses to death, but didn't God call him to do what he's doing? So, why? Well, I want to take you to Genesis in chapter 17, where we see 
that Moses was to be a part and, and practice this sign of the covenant that God made with him. And he made this covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant of circumcision. It was this outward sign that they were to perform on their male children to say, my son is yours. I'm yours. And the covenant was to be something that was outward in the flesh. They were to cut away the outward part of the male uh, part. And we'll leave it at that. If you don't know, ask, uh, ask somebody else. I don't want to talk about it. But as they made this cut in their flesh, they would cut away the outward flesh and they would expose the inward flesh. And verse 14 of chapter 17 says the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So he's no longer to have fellowship with God. He's no longer to have fellowship with God's people. He's looking on the outward like he's not actually the Lord's. He's like all the other people that they live among. This was something that set them apart. And so in a way, many believe that Moses, after fleeing Egypt, going to the backside of the desert, to a place called Midian, he meets Jethro, or other places he's called Rule. He meets this man, he marries this man's daughter, but she's not a Hebrew. So her customs are different. And so when they get married, they have a child. And this child's a male. And Abraham says, okay, it's the eighth day from the birth of our child, which I love the genius of the Lord, because we do it at eighth day, because that's when the body starts to produce vitamin K. And when the body produces vitamin K, now your blood can coagulate and you can heal. But in our day and age, when a son is born, they give him a shot of vitamin K, and then they circumcise him within the eight days before that. And so all that to say, he looks at his wife and says, hey, we do this thing back home. We kind of cut the male organ, and that shows that we're God's people. And she's like, that's weird, and we're not doing it. That's absolutely out of the question. We're not cutting his... And so with that being said, (laughs) they don't do it. And I believe that Moses, because of his previous, uh, his lapse in faith and his murdering an Egyptian taskmaster, is starting to compromise in his faith. And he says, you know what? I'm kind of an exile from my people anyway. You're right. Let's just not do it. But then God, despite the fact that he's been a disobedient in this thing too, calls Moses to leave the land that he gets married in and has sons in, and he goes back to do God's will. The Lord says, hey, you're going to do my will, but you need to set yourself apart. You need to set your family apart. Are you mine or not? Because if you're mine, you need to do the hard stuff too. Not just the stuff that they do Bible stories about, but you need to do the stuff that only I know about. You need to practice circumcision. You need to do the small things that no one else will know, the stuff that's between you and I. You need to get right with me. And so because he hadn't, and because they are encamped, and the Lord starts to try to kill Moses, Zipporah, his wife, remembering their argument, perhaps, 
says, okay, if this is serious, we'll do it. And she gets her own flint knife and she performs the circumcision. Uh, she's got some chutzpah. You know, she's got some gumption here. She, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know too many ladies that would go and do surgery on their own son. Uh, but she does and she saves her husband. She's immediately at this moment aware of what needs done and she repents and concedes to the Lord's will over hers. But notice, Zipporah still does not seem to be very happy about what's going on. She, she gets to keep her husband alive, though. And so, all that to say, let's talk about being set apart. Personal surrender to God. Individual surrender to God. Repentance. Turning from the old ways and re- responding in faith and doing what God says leads to powerful ministry where God gets the glory. If you remember in the life of Abraham, by the way, when he was given the covenant of circumcision and called to do circumcision, he was 90-some years old. He had already walked with the Lord all these years, and then the Lord institutes circumcision. He got circumcised at 90. I'm out at that point. Good grief. And then the Lord says, I want you to circumcise your sons, And then he says, I want you to circumcise all of your servants and anybody else that lives under the umbrella of your nation, they are to be circumcised. Imagine announcing that to your family. Imagine announcing that to your employees. It just got weird. I bet he lost some employees over this. I'm out. Sorry, Abraham. I really like what you do. Not doing that. You know, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And so then Jacob, later in his life, having practiced circumcision, he's been getting a wife, and he's coming back into the land. He's left Laban, his father-in-law. He's coming back to do what God says, go back to the land. And he's getting ready to meet with his brother Esau. He's been exercising the will of his flesh, trying to obey God in the strength of his flesh. And the Lord there wrestles with him in Genesis 32, and, and Jacob, wanting the blessing of God, getting ready to do the will of God, says, I'm not going to let go of you, Lord, until you bless me. And the Lord there in the passage says, okay. And he touches the socket of the hip of Jacob and dislocates it to weaken the flesh of Jacob to prepare him to be humbled and surrendered to the will of God and to kill the will of Jacob. Right before he goes to see his brother, he's weakened in the flesh so that he won't do anything stupid. And if you read the story of Jacob, he did a lot of stuff that was stupid. I relate to Jacob more than anybody else in the Bible. So then we have Moses here getting ready to do some pretty amazing things. And and the Lord comes to Moses and just about kills him and says, "Is, is your family... Are you wholeheartedly mine or not? Because if you are, you need to act like it. You need to live like it. And then in Joshua, in chapter 5, just a few books after where we are today, the same thing happens. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The generation that would not go into the land of promise says, nope, they're they're too big for us. We're not going to be able to conquer them. And they all die in the wilderness in 40 years. And then their children 
follow Joshua, who is Moses' predecessor, into the land. They crossed the Jordan. We're going to go take the land. And in order to get ready, Moses says, I want, or excuse me, the Lord says, okay, Joshua, I want you to uh, circumcise all the males. Now, by the way, if you're going to go into war, uh, the first thing you don't want to do as soon as you're vulnerable is weaken all your males by performing surgery that's going to be extremely painful to them and then have to deal with the, you know, the recovery afterwards. They've gone into the land. They've crossed the water. They're in the plain of Jericho in the sight of their enemies who know they're coming in to take over the land. And, Mo, and, and God says to Joshua, okay, get ready for battle. And you can imagine, he's like, okay, we're going to do calisthenics. We're going to do drills. We're going to get our swords sharpened. He goes, okay, take a flint knife and harm all the males. Cut away their foreskins. Now, wait a minute. The recovery room is not the place to have your enemies. And there they are. They're, they're in the, the presence of their enemies. And the Lord says, I want you to do this first. I want you to weaken yourselves before I use you powerfully because I'll get the glory this way. And so they do. They all get circumcised at a place called the Hill of Foreskins. Thank you for that. They literally named the place that. I mean, this is awkward. I get it. But it's like, you got to laugh at what's in the Bible. Good grief. Imagine geography class with a bunch of middle schoolers or high schoolers. Okay, this is our land and there's the hill. of Anyway, talk about some snickering. But I want to point something out. Is God talking us to us about circumcision because that's what we're supposed to do? I mean, many of us still do. It's, it's a cleanliness thing. It's, it's something that medically is even recommended. Imagine that. God told them to do something that would be good for their health. You know, don't eat pork. That's not good for your health. It's awesome, tasty though, right? Uh, don't, don't eat shellfish or shrimp when there's no refrigeration. Great advice in the law. But God calls us not to be circumcised in the flesh, although that's good for us, but to be circumcised in our hearts before him. To have the hard candy shell of our heart removed so we can be sensitive to his will instead of trying to do our own will. And in Romans, in chapter 2, Paul picks up on this theme in verse 25. He says, Circumcision is indeed profitable, that is, if you plan to keep the whole law. But if you're a breaker of the law, then circumcision has become pointless. You may as well be uncircumcised. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, meaning someone who's basically a pagan, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted to him as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge those who even with their written code and following all the right rules and are a transgressor of the law? And then he says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly only nor is circumcision or all that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. God wants our hearts to be set apart for him. Proverbs says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. 
If God doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you, folks. If he doesn't have the, where the issues of life flow from, that he, you're not his anyway. You may as well just go live it up. Go motley crew. Go big time, because if you're going to go to hell, you may as well enjoy it on the way. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but to act religious and not actually be surrendered to the Lord, that's a miserable life. Doing all the commandments. Every time I talk to somebody that's somewhat religious, they're like, oh, I live by the Ten Commandments. I'm like, well, I don't. I can't keep them. I've tried. Oh, I live by the Beatitudes. You do. You know, that's great. I'm glad that you're able. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. That's my surrender. Colossians chapter 2 says the same thing. So, back in our passage, verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Remember in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14, God said, I'll, I'll send Aaron to help you. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 13, Moses says, send anyone else to do this. I'm not good enough. And so he says, okay, I'll send Aaron. So he went and he met him on the mountain of God and he kissed him. This is how they would greet one another. But I want to remind you, this wasn't a text message. Hey, can you come meet me out at the mountain of God? This wasn't uh, smoke signals. They were too far to see those. Uh, God is sending Aaron miraculously from Egypt all the way to Mount Horeb, which was on the Sinai Peninsula. So God is reinforcing to Moses, this is what I've called you to do. How do you know? Well, number one, your father-in-law has let you go. He's letting you go, take time away from work to go and deliver your people. Number two, he's, he's sending his uh, your brother, to go and reinforce you, and you didn't tell him. God did. So here he is. He's coming. And uh, number three, I can't remember, so we'll move on. <clears throat> you got to do a, the pastor thing. You got to have points. You got to have alliteration. You got to do all that stuff, right? Because then people memorize it. But I didn't even memorize it. So God sends Aaron to Moses as promised. And then Moses' job is to bring Aaron up to speed in verse 28. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord. Here's God's plan. And he tells him all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. So he says, here's God's plan. Here's our role in the plan. And here's who is sending us. Verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. He's kicking off the operation. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Step one, share the word of God. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. Simply, obey God, show them the signs, prove to them who sent you. Step three, so step one, gather the elders and the children. Get an audience together. Step two, speak the words that I told you. Step three, perform the signs that I told you. That There's no more steps. What happens after that? There was really no part to that plan. But the result of simple obedience was the people, verse 31, believed. They believed who sent them. 
They received the message, and notice this. When they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, this was good news. They hadn't heard a word from the Lord for 400 years. Have you ever gone through a desert time where it feels like God's not really interested in what's going on in your life? I guarantee it was less than 400 years. Maybe it was a week. Maybe it was four years. God's word's still true. He has not left you or forsaken you. He is with you. If you are his, he takes that personally. Notice it says, when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he had looked on their affliction, he noticed what they were going through. When, he, when they recognized that God knew what they were experiencing, their affliction, and that he had taken the painstaking process of raising up a deliverer and sending him to them, notice their response. They bowed their heads. They worshiped God. They gave thanks. They were giving thanks while still slaves, by the way. They were giving thanks before the deliverer delivered them. That's amazing. How many times are we not willing to be thankful because the thing God said he would do hasn't happened yet? And I would submit to you that true thankfulness happens before the deliverance comes. Worship and praise is, is what leads us into victory. It's, it's, it's the anointing that we need to get through the daily until God fulfills his word. Their response, they heard what God's, that God saw their affliction and was going to deliver them, and they worshiped and praised God. And that's the formula. Many of you have people in your life, you're trying to get them to understand that God is good and that he has a plan for them and that he has already atoned for their sin if they're willing to receive that. How do I get them to believe? Hear from God, speak what he says, do what he says, and leave the rest to him. You cannot force people to believe. You cannot reason with them long enough to change their heart. Only God can do that. But if you'll do that, those that he sends you to, some of them will believe. And then God will get the glory, not you. And everyone gets to celebrate in that. Our calling, by the way, is the same as Moses. It's the same as Aaron. It's eventually going to be the same as the Israelites. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, which I would even make conjecture to say that the people that Moses were speaking to eventually became disciples of the same God, Jesus. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt needs to be taken care of. It needs to be set apart. It's for a specific use. Having your heart prepared to serve. Don't lose your saltiness. You're supposed to be different. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Moses had light because he had seen the light in the burning bush, and now he's flickering with that same flame. And now he's called to take what he's received first from the Lord and speak to the people of Israel. He says, you're the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill. It can't be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So therefore, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Your faith is not meant to be hidden. Your faith is meant to be seen and heard and lived out in public life. If your faith is only something that's between you and God, praise the Lord for that. But it needs to go from there because otherwise it, it's, it's in vain. He's called us to be light into the world. So what does that take? In the same way as Moses, it, to, it takes you surrendering your livelihood. Surrender your job to the Lord. It takes you surrendering your plans. You might have awesome plans. Gods are better, I promise. I've had some pretty great plans that the Lord has ripped up, crumbled up, and thrown away. And I cried, don't get me wrong. But his plans have been way better. Way better. Way more fruitful. Surrender your family. If God's called you go, to go do something, take them with you. They're with you on purpose. Teach them as you're doing what he's given you to do. You won't be too busy. They'll learn way more from what you do than from what you say. Exchange your will for his. That's what circumcision's all about. Laying aside the strength of the flesh so that the spirit can live through you. And then you will get to see many give glory to God because of the message that they receive from him, but through you. You'll be a vessel that's prepared for his use. So as we get ready to take communion this morning, I would ask you, is he yours? Are you his? Have you given your heart to him? Are you surrendered to what he is giving you to do? And are you willing to lay aside all that you hold dear or to take all that you hold dear with you as you serve? Because if you're willing and if you're, you'll be fruitful. <laughs> if you're willing if you're set apart for his use, if you're purified through his blood, he's going to use you and your calling will be sure and others will see it and they'll give glory to God. So we're going to take communion this morning and then the worship team's going to come up. They're going to lead us and then the ushers are going to hand out communion. But I want you to take this time just between you and God and ask him, Lord, I'm willing to serve you and I'm yours but am I really yours inwardly where no one else sees? Have I really given my heart over to you to do your will instead of mine? So Father, um, I thank you for this word from the Old Testament where we see that Moses was willing and yet there were some things that he had to go back and be obedient to so that he could do the next thing. Father, I thank you for your patience with Moses. Thank you for your graciousness with him. I thank you for even softening Zipporah's heart to do something that to her seemed odd and weird, and yet obedience led way to power in their ministry. So Father, for us as individuals, I pray, are there ways that we are yet to be obedient that are holding us back from all the land that you want to take in our lives. Lord, help us to be obedient in the first things so that we can get to the next things and we can continue to walk by faith and purity so that the world will see you and know you and see your ways in us. Father, stir up our hearts, stir up our affection 
that obedience would become something that's natural fruit of our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.